0: Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo podcast where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smezo de Leon and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts or stream, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in El Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the Diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. What's up, Paseo Podcast listeners? Thanks for downloading today's episode of the show. Super happy you are here with us today. It's a big day for our podcast, as I got a notification before going on vacation that we hit 5,000 downloads. That's all thanks to you for listening, downloading, and sharing our Boricua content, so a big shout out and thank you to you all for rocking with us. We always love hearing from our listeners, so if you want to pitch a story via our website, baseomedia.org, and or leave a positive review on whatever streaming platform you're listening to us on, we'd love to hear from you. Of course, we always engage and post regularly on our Facebook and Twitter account, at Baseo Podcast. We have an Instagram account, too, but uh, that's more just for the purposes of locking down that handle. Nothing's posted there yet, but you can request to follow us, and we'll gladly accept. Hopefully, we'll get that up and running, maybe a YouTube channel in the future, too, but uh, stay tuned on all that. Um, Needless to say, very happy to have 5,000 downloads. Keep that love coming looked at our ratings on apple podcast recently we're at five stars so really again just appreciate the love y'all have been sending so really really thank you all for for listening to us another big deal for us today is that i finally finally got a decent mic set up for our pre-pandemic listeners our shows were mostly recorded in the puerto rican cultural center on paseo boricua here in chicago With the pandemic, we've had to record remotely and rely on Zoom to have conversations with the different Boricua every week. Of course, the conversations have always been great, but the audio, in my opinion, not so much. So no offense to Zoom, but the quality we were getting with just the standard Zoom call wasn't as good. So now with our new setup, it's a thousand times better. So thankfully, the interview you're going to listen to today with emergency medicine doctor Marina Del Rios is with our new setup. I know our sound editor, Richie Requeña, and his ears, for that matter, definitely appreciate it, and I hope you will too. Before we get into our interview with Dr. Del Rios, I want to talk about some election news. In our last episode, I talked about the lack of attention Puerto Rico got in the horrible presidential debate where, once again, policy, Puerto Rico, was an afterthought. Today, I want to talk about the importance of voting for us as Puerto Ricans and a new report by NBC News that I shared on my Twitter account at JSDeleon, if you want to follow me on Twitter, that stated about 200,000 Puerto Ricans haven't registered to vote since their arrival in the U.S. Now, this has happened before. This is the current number that's added on to previous instances where Puerto Ricans have migrated from La Isla to the United States and not registered to vote in time for the presidential election. So why do we have 200K Puerto Ricans that have yet to register to vote in the United States? There are a number of reasons for this. Some of them include lack of info on voter registration, unfamiliarity with the U.S. party system, unfamiliarity with how U.S. elections actually work, And many Puerto Ricans, frankly, just don't know about early voting or the fact that voting has already begun in the United States right now. Keep in mind, I did not mention apathy in that list of reasons. And that's because voter participation in Puerto Rico is at 80% in most major elections. And now, keep in mind, that's compared to less than 60% of Americans in the United States. Unlike in the U.S., where there are intentional barriers meant for voter suppression... PR has a voting culture where even election day is more communal and is a holiday. So that means no work, no school for most people. As a colony of the United States, it's one of the few times Boricuas get the chance to vote. So it's very important to people in our community. The ability and right to vote of Puerto Ricans in the United States is especially important because in order for Boricuas to vote on the future of La Isla at the federal level, they must leave their home in order to vote for its future. That's a big deal. As NBC News put it, and this is within the context of the general election, looking back as a way to inform our present and, and where we want to go, future, as NBC News put it, we've seen this issue before. In 2015 and 2016, the financial crisis on La Isla sent tens of thousands of Puerto Ricans to the mainland, and particularly to South and Central Florida, where they would have been eligible to vote in the 2016 elections. Now, Trump's margin of victory, as an example in Florida in 2016, was 1.2 percentage points, or 112,911 votes. So to put that into perspective for you... The Puerto Rican vote can really make or break a presidential election, so it's important for all of us to really get out the word, help the people we know that aren't registered to vote, if we're not registered to vote ourselves, making sure that we are aware of what process we have to go through at the state level in order to exercise our civic duty. Now, more than ever, our voices are needed in this election. If you're listening to this, if you you haven't or you know someone who hasn't registered to vote, check out vote.gov to find out how you can register to vote in your state. And again, like I said before, exercise your civic duty. It really can make the difference. Regardless of what party, what candidate you're for, it can make the difference from the top of the ticket to the bottom of the ticket. Speaking of the election, I was going to talk about Puerto Rico's governor, uh, Wanda Vasquez. Uh, She endorsed Trump as president. But you know what? I'm not a comedian, and this is a joke. Only thing I have to say on this is I would love to hear specific reasons for her endorsement because she says Trump is someone, and I'm quoting here, who thinks about Puerto Ricans and their needs at the most difficult moment, end quote. Really? Really? Was it, uh, what were some of the reasons here? Was um, Was it when he was throwing paper towels at us? Refusing to release billions in aid that Congress had approved years ago? Uh, trying to sell Puerto Rico in exchange for Greenland, or, um, I don't know, demonizing the entire Latinx community. I wish I could say I was surprised, but Puerto Rico has been run by conservatives for years, so this is really just an accidental governor that no one elected, maintaining the status quo. I'm not going to devote any more energy to this endorsement, but my heart goes out to our entire community, who unfortunately have to choose in this election between voting for president or voting for a governor of La Isla. Because with the way the voting system works for Puerto Ricans, you sadly can't do both. It's tough to transition from that. Uh, it's, it's frustrating to see uh, that endorsement. It's frustrating to see people have not registered to vote. It's frustrating to hear that the largest percentage of undecided voters are Latinx. But my hope is that the more we push, the more we express the importance of our rights to vote, uh, the more we talk about uh, our civic engagement and the importance of that, and the more we continue to educate ourselves on the political ins and outs of La Isla and the United States, the more informed voters we're going to be, the more informed citizens we're going to be. Uh, and ideally, we'll vote in people in power that have Puerto Rico's and Puerto Ricans' best interests in mind. Transitioning to our interview today, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Dr. Marina Del Rios is with us. She holds multiple hats, and I'll take a deep dive with her on almost all of them. We're going to talk about what her experience has been teaching medical students, COVID-19's impact on the Latino community, her personal story of trying to avoid bringing the virus home to her husband and children at the height of uncertainty in this pandemic, and a whole lot more. So let's jump into the interview. It is October fifth, twenty twenty, but that doesn't really matter because it's a podcast. You're listening to it whenever, wherever you are. Ultimately, we're just happy you're here. We're happy you're listening, and I'm especially happy you are listening today because we have a special guest on the show today. Our guest on the Paseo Podcast is Marina Del Rio's. She's an emergency physician here in Chicago. Uh, Marina, welcome to the Paseo Podcast. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing good. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Perfect, perfect. I appreciate you being on. What should our audience know about you?
1: I'm an emergency physician. I'm also faculty in the College of Medicine in the Department of Emergency Medicine at UIC, University of Illinois, Chicago. And uh, and I serve in the role of director of social emergency medicine in that faculty. I've been working at UIC for almost 10 years now.
0: So what is social emergency medicine? That's the first time I ever heard of that when I was looking up your title.
1: Sure. Well, so um, I guess I'll take a step back and first talk about social medicine because it really is not just something that emergency physicians do, but something that all medical doctors should practice. So social medicine seeks to implement social care uh, through understanding how social and economic conditions impact health, disease, and the practice of medicine. And by fostering conditions in which this understanding can lead to a healthier society. Uh, with regards to social emergency medicine, we recognize the unique position of the emergency department in the community and within the healthcare system as a point of entry into the healthcare system for a lot of marginalized populations, and the role of the emergency department as a safe haven for the community.
0: Can you give us like a little walkthrough? What does your role entail? What's your day to day, your week to week like?
1: Well, so I'm responsible for engaging medical students, residents, and even some of our faculty, so people, other physicians like me, in uh, service opportunities. Um, And so whether that's within the emergency department itself, so a lot of the work that we do in the emergency department, even some of the research that we do is trying to improve the access of the patients that we see um, to healthcare or to social services that they may need. Um, But also, I try to link them to service opportunities in the greater Chicago area. And so um, I've volunteered for several community organizations, um, including the Puerto Rican Agenda and Illinois Unidos. Um, A lot of my colleagues who are involved in social emergency medicine are also involved in other service projects, um, like Chicago Street Medicine, for example, and other initiatives like that. Um, And then the other thing that I do is I also help develop residency curriculum. So the um, graduates of medical schools who are now training to become emergency room doctors, I've helped to create curriculum so that they can continue keep um, learning about how the social determinants of health affect our community and affect specifically the patients that we see um, every day in the emergency department. And then the other thing is we actually, within our residency program, we have a social emergency medicine track. So for residents that are interested in social emergency medicine as something they wanna continue practicing and um, keeping, you know, putting a focus in their academic career post the residency program, they um, they can engage in service product opportunities. They participate in didactics related specifically on things like systemic racism and inequalities in uh, gender bias, for example, mm. uh, you know, age bias, ableism, all of those topics uh, with the intent that they'll continue practicing kind of keeping those topics in mind mm. as they take care of patients in their day-to-day uh, activities.
0: I'm really happy you said that. I, I remember reading, she um, was, I can't remember where I was reading this, um, but it was a study that was showing uh, people of color specifically black women that they weren't that their issues their medical issues whatever they were having were not treated with the same level of care and intentionality as their white counterparts um so ideally what you're teaching residents now is something they they carry into their professional work um so really happy to hear that that's like a very intentional part of the curriculum. Do you feel like in your role that you're seeing that as a big point of interest or concern in med students today? Or are there other points of interest that have kind of captivated their minds?
1: I think there's always been an interest. At least I can always recall, even as a med student, I I, uh, I actually participated in a, in a group that was called the hip hop program, which was the oh um health interventions program. Health or I, I can't remember what it stood for. Anyway but the but the program was all about um really engaging with the patients that we saw that might have uh, difficulty accessing healthcare whether it was because they were undocumented or might be uninsured or maybe homeless. And so we we got together as a group of med students and decided, well, why not set up our own clinic and have a faculty supervisor, right? And that same model has carried out and I graduated many, many moons ago. I'm not gonna say how long, but it's been a few decades. So I think the interest has already been there. I think that our current current situation with civil unrest and with growing inequalities in our society, I think maybe has made the the need more urgent. And so I do think that the new generation of medical students is, is trying to become better educated in these topics of ableism and sexism and racism in a way that, um, Maybe there wasn't so much curiosity, you know, 20, 30 years ago, perhaps because even though the disparities were always there, it just seems like they've become so much more amplified in the last few decades. And mm-hmm. so I feel that the, the new generation of medical students can't turn, can't turn their, their uh, attention from that anymore, right? Like mm-hmm. in the past, it was easy to kind of sleep it under the rug and talk about individual level risks. But now as problems have gotten amplified, and I think especially now with the COVID pandemic, right, it's, it's exacerbated and exposed so many things that were already there. And so I do feel that there's more of a curiosity and a need in this new generation of medical students and residents in, in really having a way of understanding better why their patients are having such a difficult time with keeping their their health up to date right Um, and understanding the bigger role that society and the social determinants of health play in in their health
0: yeah i definitely want to talk about the inequalities in our medical system uh, our healthcare system especially when it comes to the latinx population i did want to just focus in on on you specifically and your personal experience uh as a person of color How do you how do you feel you approach your role as an emergency as both an emergency physician and as an associate professor? um, How do you approach both of those roles differently than some of your white counterparts?
1: I don't want to make this sound crass because it's not meant to be this way, Mm -hmm. but I do feel that sometimes when you're not uh, when you haven't had a real need, right? Or have mm-hmm. been um, marginalized in any way? Uh, sometimes, what you know, more privileged folks do seems more like charity, and mm. as opposed to when you can speak from experience. And and I'm not saying not all Latinos have the same experience, right? But in my case, you know, I'm the donator of a janitor. Um, my I am the first woman in my in my family to go to college, let alone go to professional school, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, this is more about solidarity and understanding that I am not that far removed from the folks that I am trying to engage with and help because I was there 20, 30 years ago. So um, it's a little bit different from... You know, let's just help those poor souls. It's for mm-hmm. me, it's more, I want to help my family mm. because it's my duty because I understand that this is where I come from. And, you know, I'm one illness away or one bad luck away of returning to that situation.
0: You being the only person with a medical degree, does your phone, is your phone constantly in a state of just blowing up? People asking you, like, Hey, uh, you know my leg is not feeling like it did the other day. Uh, can you diagnose it? Here's a picture. <laughs> Do you get a lot of that? Are you the go-to person?
1: I get some emails. I get some text messages. My husband's cousin has his three little kids, and so she's always very, uh, especially now during COVID, she's a little anxious about taking the kids to the doctor. Rightly so, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to expose them unnecessarily. So. So she'll send me text messages. Hey, you know, my, my daughter has this rash. Can I send you a picture? Can you just give me your opinion before I, you know, go panic with the physician? And I'm fine with answering those questions. Yes. You know, that's not, that's, I, I think that's part of my duty as, you know, if I have the knowledge, why not share it?
0: Definitely. Well, and to your point about experience, like to have a, a doctor in the family, someone with that medical knowledge is such a privilege to have. And when you think about how our community may not have good access to health care, you are their health insurance. It's good to hear that you're like, yeah, bring it on. Send me the text messages. Give me the calls.
1: You know, having been on the other side and understanding how expensive an emergency room visit can be
2: mm-hmm.
1: or a clinic visit can be, right? And so if you if you can save the visit, you know, turn an emergency department visit into a clinic visit by... Reassuring someone that this is not something that they need to go through to the emergency department right away, Mm -hmm. then I feel that that's a huge service that I can that I can provide. Um, Especially understanding that I have family members that don't have the best health insurance and have really big deductibles, and you know, again, if I can save them the trip, why not?
0: Big question I've been meaning to ask you because it's been—I mean, it's dominated our news cycle. COVID nineteen. Don't really feel like the effects of COVID-19 on communities of color gets as much play, definitely gets reported on, which is, which is good. Um, There's some good reporting out there, but it, it would be great to hear firsthand from someone in that field. Cause I know you're involved with a, a really cool uh, initiative. It's called the Illinois Latino COVID-19 initiative. But w- what is that for people that are hearing this for the first time?
1: So this started out as a group of Latino leaders of, uh, different services, so health and and human services organizations, community-based organizations, elected officials uh, from the city, county, state, national offices, even uh, public health experts, and then people like me who are frontline healthcare providers. And our mission is to stop community spread of COVID-19 in in our Latino community while also relating, uh, while also addressing related public health issues and the devastating economic impact of COVID-19 in our community. So, we started out as the, Latino, the Illinois Latino COVID 19 Initiative because we were very focused on what COVID 19 broke, exposed, and exacerbated. Mm-hmm. But as we're kind of thinking long term, a lot of these problems beyond the pandemic are going to remain, unfortunately, unless we have a major structural change, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, as the pandemic crisis started to kind of Calm down a little bit in, in the state, we started thinking about how we could expand to other areas. And so the membership has grown over time. We started as 30 people back in April. Now, I think we have close to 100 members, if not more. And what we've moved on is to develop policy recommendations for things like childcare, education, immigration, housing, uh, food insecurity, and other social problems that have been the result of decades of systemic racism and xenophobic policies against Latinos. It's a very multidisciplinary cross-sectoral partnership. Hmm. So anyone is invited to join and, and I really urge people that if they're interested in volunteering, please do so. We we have a website, we have Twitter and Facebook, please send us a message and yeah, and come join us.
0: Uh, definitely. Use do extra you, help. If you have the website Anya and the social media handles, feel free to throw them out now.
1: Okay. So the the website is com, just like that. And then the Twitter handle, I think is as easy as at at Illinois and our Facebook too. If you just search Illinois you'll find our Facebook page. And I think that we're about to start an Instagram and a YouTube channel too, but those are still in the making.
0: In your work, what are some of the things that stand out to you as it relates to COVID-19 in the Latino community?
1: Well, so one is the I think the most obvious one is the the huge inequities in healthcare access and in just staying healthy, right? I think that one thing that we've seen in the state of Illinois and in Chicago specifically is that Latinos are overrepresented in the number of cases of COVID-19, mm-hmm. right? The state of Illinois is about 17% Latino. And yet, I think at this point, where 25% of cases are Latino, uh, it's within the last week. At one point, it was close to 40% and overrepresentation compared to the population, right?
0: In your opinion, what do you, what do you think the reason is behind that? Is that? Is that uh, like What spectrum are we talking about? Is it lack of access to healthcare? Is it, uh, are you seeing a lot of people in the Latino community that may think wearing a mask is something silly? Is it the reality of our healthcare system to just a very like uh, partisan outlook on the virus as a whole? Like what do you see? It's multifactorial,
1: seeing? right? Okay. I think it's multifactorial. I think one thing, so, um, you know, early on in the pandemic, when all of us were ordered to stay at home. Mm-hmm. Not everyone has that privilege, right? And so this is where you noticed the privilege of who could stay home and who couldn't. And it was reflected in the numbers, and that's why black and brown communities were the most largely affected because these are all people that are essential workers. They are the people that make our economy run, who work in the restaurants and service industry and in meatpacking plants and manufacturing and you know, these are all folks that can't work from home lawyers and business people and you know we could all take our zoom calls from home even a lot of physicians were able to change their practice and do Mm -hmm. telehealth right I can't I still have to go to the emergency department Mm -hmm. a lot of nurses still had to go to the hospital right and Mm -hmm. janitors and all that so I think part of it was that just the fact that people were still being exposed and um unable to to really follow the rules of physical distancing and, um, and, you know, trying to stay away from crowded spaces and all that, because you just have no choice but to make money, right, Mm -hmm. to have to still be employed.
0: Well, and if you're deemed an essential worker, and you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, do you go and work and risk your, your life? Or do you not go and not get a paycheck and risk your family's life?
2: Right.
1: And so, and that's compounded. Then on, you know, that's why people got infected. Then the question is, why are people having more negative outcomes, right? Because uh, even though the pandemic initially hit very hard the African American population, right, and killed a lot of a lot of Black people in Chicago and Illinois, mostly elderly folks. As you're seeing now, as the pandemic has evolved, you're looking now that there's a good chunk of people that are in that working age group between 20 and 60, and the largest proportion are Latinos.
2: Mm.
1: And why are these large proportion of people dying? It goes to what you were saying, it's access to healthcare, right? It's not only being able to access access uh, adequate medical treatment once you get COVID, right? There's that one piece, and so, A lot of folks are uninsured or underinsured or may fear seeking medical care because of their documentation status, right? Mm -hmm. There's also the language component. A lot of folks, I heard many stories of patients showing up to an emergency department and not being able to convey how sick they were Mm -hmm. and being sent home when they probably should have been kept in the hospital, right? So, so put the language barrier, the fact that you can't access healthcare for your COVID. And then on top of that, there's also a high rate of comorbid illnesses in our community that put us at higher risk also for having bad outcomes, things like diabetes and high blood pressure and obesity, right? Mm -hmm. All of those put you at higher risk for if you get COVID to have a, a worse outcome than if you're healthy, right? And so these are, these all go back to the concepts of, when you have communities where open spaces are not available for people to exercise, where there's food deserts for healthy food, right? Where you, um, you have very bad public transportation system and cannot easily get to a hospital or to a clinic, right? So all of that gets compounded. And so it really is multifactorial and mm-hmm. speaks to you know, how complicated and messy living in this society is, especially when you're poor.
0: How do you personally deal with this? You mentioned having to. You you still have to go into work. You have your family at home. Like, how do you make sure that you're being safe at work so you're not bringing anything back home? What type of precautions are you taking?
1: Yeah. Well, so thankfully, we're at a point now where uh, so far, I I've never um, I've had to reuse PPE. I've mm-hmm. never gone without PPE. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, so prior to the pandemic, typically, if you had a case of someone that had tuberculosis, for example, or had a very infectious disease like Ebola, which mm-hmm. is rare, but you did see some cases in the US, you know, the practice was you would have a, um, a mask that you would just remove and throw away and a face shield that you would remove and throw away or else have you know a complete gear that would go somewhere else to get disinfected but you know the number of cases that we got of covid was just so high it really overwhelmed the resources that we had to keep our healthcare workers safe and which is why you see that in new york for example there were so many nurses and doctors and janitors and 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 you know people in health in the, in in the healthcare field whether you know, physicians, nurses, or other people that worked in hospitals who died because they didn't have adequate personal protective equipment. Thankfully in Illinois, we didn't get to that point. We did lose some people early on, I think in mm-hmm. part because we didn't know what we're dealing with. Um, but at one point in my hospital, we ran really low on a 95 mask, And
2: mm-hmm.
1: we were asked to not throw our masks at the end of the shift,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but to send it back to get disinfected and recycled so i never had to use the same dirty mask for more than one shift i was using one mask per shift which is a change in practice from what we were doing prior to the pandemic
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and so when these things were happening i had i had a really honest discussion with my husband because i was worried that i was going to bring something home i i you know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't the ideal practice to have to reuse an m 95 We had enough gowns, we had face shields that we could wipe down with with uh, disinfectant wipes, and so I felt comfortable using those um, more than once. But I was really worried that I would miss a spot. You know, that I would that I would not tie my gown correctly, or maybe removing my mask, I might you know touch my hair or you know end up contaminating myself in some way, and so we had a a very honest discussion about risks and benefits of me staying home and in the end we finally decided that as a family we're pretty healthy um you know my husband is and and i are not terribly old we're in our you know we're in our 40s um he's he works out i do too you know we're, we're relatively healthy our kids are also relatively healthy and so we kind of weighed, well, you know, as long as I'm being very aggressive about wearing PPE at work and decontaminating thoroughly when I get home. And so no one's allowed to come close to me, not even the, my dogs, when I get home. Mm-hmm. I, I get home, I, I, you know, strip in the laundry room and dash for the shower and, you know, scrub every single part of my body.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, then, and then when I come out, I can get close to my family. And so what we decided is that it was a low enough risk, given that circumstance for us. And it would it be a lot harder on the kids if mom was not, was not home for months at a time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this has been very strange from, you know, I'm used to stress. I'm an emergency physician. I take care of strokes of traumas of heart attacks. You know, mm-hmm. this is the first time where I'm fearing for my own health. Mm-hmm. And, and that was hard at the beginning. I think finally we've, come to terms that, you know, we have systems in place that keep us relatively safe, but it's it's still really anxiety provoking, especially because there's been such really poor messaging from our leadership.
0: There was one thing you said about the messaging around the pandemic. Why do you think the messaging is so convoluted? And number two, where do you think that comes from?
1: Well, so the reality is that this is a brand new disease. Right. And so early on, I think there was a lot of confusion because we just didn't know what we were working with. Right. Even, you know, even this this concept of wearing a mask at the beginning, we were told, well, don't wear it because it doesn't really protect you. And what we've learned is, well, yeah, it doesn't protect you, but it protects others from you, right? And so the message changed and when we realized that, okay, it may not help you personally, but if we all wear it, then we're all protecting each other, right? But then the, I think the biggest issue has been that there's no central source of reliable information, right? say for say, maybe Anthony Fauci, which I actually respect a lot. And I used his textbook when I was in medical school, which is kind of cool. You know, the fact that, I mean, I'm just going to call it out. The fact that our president has been just so anti-science the entire time. And so the word in Spanish is soberbio. <laughs> There's just no, not a good translation for that word in English, but, you know, it, it really is this concept of he knows it all. And, And it's either his way or no other way. And I mean, we're even witnessing it now with him, he himself getting sick, just not taking personal responsibility for all of the other people that he has exposed. Um, And and just, you know, earlier I was saying that the White House has decided that they're not gonna do any contact tracing for that Rose Garden event where it was presumably a super spreader event. Today, he decided to parade himself in front of folks without a mask.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, saw that. That was ridiculous.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, so this is the thing. You know, I, we're, we were used up to now mm-hmm. that, you know, even if the president himself may not be the scientist, they convey the information that presumably the scientists are putting together, right? And this mm-hmm. is what happened with Obama in the time of the H1N1 uh, influenza epidemic, right? And then, and also with Ebola, you know, these were people that we looked up to and that were listening to the scientists and would stand alongside scientists to ensure that we were getting the correct information. Mm-hmm. And instead what we have is an administration who is constantly at odds with the science. And this is not only with, with now coronavirus, right? It's also been with climate change,
2: Mm-hmm. it's
1: also been with you know systemic racism it's it's really it it's uh the message that they push is based on their own belief system even if that belief system isn't based on reality so i, I mean i think that that's been the biggest issue that we don't have we don't have a leader that we can trust and so um and so people are getting information from other resources right mm-hmm. and so some of it is The president himself and and his leaders but also there's a lot of just bad information on the internet and a lot of contradicting information and good reliable information is is hard to come by
0: we want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, Give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-E-O-P-O-D at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. You brought up a really good point. One, having an administration that is at odds with the scientists, the professionals, the people that have dedicated their lives to learning and understanding and articulating these these issues. But you also made a really good point about having a central figure that normally you have kind of this go to person that can field those questions, that can uh, deliver information, deliver updates. And with something like a pandemic, when we have from week to week, maybe sometimes day to day as we're continuing to understand this virus and how it ticks, sometimes the guidance will shift. So the idea of having a central figure that manages expectations for people to say like, hey, know that this is an ever evolving situation, uh, to your point about your example with wearing masks, you know, and, and making sure that that and, and that guidance kind of uh, the, the, um, the messaging around wearing masks being, you know, it's about protecting others, not necessarily protecting yourselves. When at first it was like, just put on a mask, whatever you can find, like throw it on, just like setting expectations so people know, just thinking about um, our, our road to getting a vaccine. I've said that on the show before, I don't think we're anywhere near out of the woods yet on this thing. You know, at minimum, maybe a year when you think about actually getting the right vaccine and test trials. You correct me. You're you're the medical. I don't have the medical Diary. degree uh, Two potentially years, maybe two, three years before they actually get something down and, and get everybody this this access to this vaccine. Um, but when we have an administration that says, by Easter, it's going to be taken care of, it'll be like a miracle, it'll vanish, it won't be here, that just gunks up the works. And then we have what we have now, where, where grocery workers are getting attacked or getting verbally abused because they're being asked to wear a mask in order to, to, to shop I'm just getting a little riled up because it feels like this this is not rocket science and this should be something that's approached with a certain level of care and intentionality and it, it's more of just, I don't know how masks became partisan. I don't know how masks became partisan at all, I don't know how protecting your fellow human beings became an issue of Republican versus Democrat, um, but here we are, um, and like I said earlier, you know, all the respect in the world for people in your field, for yourself, for the work you're doing, I do want to shift gears to something a bit lighter and definitely as we evolve in this COVID-19 pandemic, I definitely will may have you may reach out to you again to have you on to talk a little bit about the current state of things. But um, shifting gears as we come to the end of our time together, um, you talked about at the Puerto Rican Agenda meeting running a marathon. I can't remember for the life of me what marathon it was, but you said (laughs) you were training for one. Um, so, what, so what was that marathon, why are, you, why are you running in it?
1: So actually it's called the Race for Rona and it is, it is sponsored by the Get Me PPE Chicago organization. So in response to the shortage of personal protective equipment early on in the pandemic, a group of medical students from Chicago got together and founded this organization to solicit and deliver uh, PPE for areas in need. And so they have a fundraiser race, which is basically just commit to run whatever you like and, you know, and then donate the, the um, I guess the funds that you receive for your run to Get Me PPE Chicago. So So yeah, so I signed up, and it's not—it's not a marathon; it's a half marathon. Oh okay.
0: (laughs) Oh, you should have taken it just. No, no, no.
1: no, no. So it's actually race. It's it's run whatever distance you like. And so what I what I told folks is that I pledged to run up to 13.1 miles if I could get 100 miles for every mile run. So, so I did make my do- goal and, and then some, so I may have to run 14 miles, um, <laughs> but uh, but all of the proceeds are going to go directly to this organization, which in turn is donating PPE to places like homeless shelters and nursing homes and low-income communities and, you know, community-based organizations, um, a- any area that's in need. People, actually, if you need any sources, you can ask for them. They, they have a way of requesting um, PPE through their website getmeppechicago.org, get and they're part of the na- a larger national movement called Get Us PPE, um, which uh, which I actually also have volunteered time with as well.
0: If somebody wanted to support you in the half marathon, how would they be able to do that?
1: So we so I'm closed for donations for my run because it was up to September 30th. But if you want to donate to get BPP Chicago, please do. You can go to their website. They have a form um, you can donate through, I think, PayPal or Venmo or other forms like that. Um, And again, your money will be going for a very good cause.
0: Awesome. Cool. Well, Marina, last question I have for you. I promise. Um, As someone that is an educator, as someone in the medical field... Do you have any advice uh, for people that um, are in the medical field today and anyone that's aspiring to enter into the medical field professionally?
1: Well, so for those that are thinking about it, please do. (laughs) We need more Latinos. I think the latest statistics for physicians, and I don't know what it looks like for nursing and uh, researchers. I'm sure that it's not very different, Um, but I know that for, for medical doctors, only 6% of us are are latino and in fact i think only 2% are latinas so we're a very rare breed we're unicorns and we need more of you so um so yeah i think uh, i would say don't get discouraged i, I think pre health professions are they're they're hard right you're learning a lot of hard sciences and math and It's a, it's a difficult career, but I would say, you know, don't get discouraged, find good mentors. There's few of us, but look, I always tell people my mentors were all a bunch of white guys. Uh, It's just finding the right person who will be your sponsor. And so, you know, if you're lucky enough to live in a place where there's Latinos around you that are in the health professions, you know, seek them out. We're always happy to lend a hand that, You know, that's not to say there's a lot of really good sponsors that are that are well aware of of what white privilege means and the importance of diversifying the health profession. So seek people out there. There's a lot of good people that that um, that really want to see our medical system change.
0: Okay, Marina, uh, I'd like to end the show inviting my guests to share with our listeners how people can keep keep up with them, how people can keep up with their work. So how can people keep up with you, your work, Illinois Unidos, uh, Race Verona? Uh, Give us all the handles, all the websites. What do we need to know?
2: Well,
1: so if you want to keep up with me, and I, I put messages about everything from healthcare issues to my own views of politics. I want to make it clear my views represent my views alone and not the place where I work. Um, but my Twitter handle is at D-R-A-C-O-Q-U-I-M-D. So, at Doctora Coqui MD. Love that.
2: Um,
1: <laughs> and, uh, and so for Illinois Unidos, it's as easy as IllinoisUnidos.com. Or you can also follow us with our Twitter handle. It's il Unidos. Um, or you can find us on Facebook. Just look up Illinois Unidos, You'll see our, our Facebook page. And um, and if you want to donate money to get PPE to communities in need, then you know, just you can follow at get Me PPE Chicago on Twitter, or you can also go to their website, GetMePPEChicago.org.
0: All right, Marina Del Rios, thank you so much for being on the Paseo podcast today.
1: Thanks for the invitation.
0: Thank you to Marina Del Rios for joining the show today. On next week's episode, I will be joined by Chicago Alderman of the 35th Ward, Carlos Ramirez Rosa. He is Chicago's first openly gay Latino elected official and a Democratic Socialist. We're going to talk about representation in our political system, why he chose public service, and get his thoughts on the presidential election. It's going to be an interview worth listening to, so we hope you join us next week. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, media.org emailing us at at gmail.com, and following us at Baseo Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, We love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode and see you next week. Cuídate.